This week's podcast is sponsored by Holy Innocence Parish School, Catholic classical liberal arts education in the heart of Long Beach. To find out more information, you can visit their website at www.lbcatholicschool.com. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty, where we discuss the various ways we can elevate and affect the culture through beauty. I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra. Today, we have Samantha Schroeder. Um, She is the Deputy Director of the Federalist Society Films, working as a video producer, project manager, and content creator. She began making films at the Federalist Society in 2016, and this year, her first documentary, Fashion and Intellectual Property, has been an official film selection in film festivals around the world. Screened in Madrid, Milan, New York, Chicago, Seattle, and England. Her films have received several awards, including Best Short, Best Documentary, and Best Director in Madrid and Seattle film festivals. Samantha has produced, written, and directed over 50 films, and over 100 specifically for the Federalist Society films having no prior film experience before this role. Samantha was recently awarded a Publius Fellowship from the Claremont Institute. She has written for various publications, including Acculturated, The Federalist, Faith Counts, and Public Discourse. Her dream is to write, direct, and produce documentaries on the life of Dietrich von Hildebrand, St. Teresa of Avila, and Isabel of Spain. Welcome, Samantha. Hi, Sequoia. Thanks for having me. Yes, such a pleasure to have you on. My goodness, such a you know accomplished guest with so many films. Really excited to to delve into that. And congrats on all your work and the awards that your films have been receiving. I've followed <laughs> your travels with that, so that's very exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. It's just the beginning. Yes. Now, some of your <laughs> more recent films are on you know fashion law and intellectual property tariffs and things like that. So I want to get into why these topics. But before that, for those of us, you know, who may not know or be familiar with the Federalist Society, um, what what is the Federalist, Federalist Society and what do they do? Sure. So the Federalist Society was started in the early 80s um, at University of Chicago by a few law school students who wanted to bring another side of legal theory to debate and education on law school campuses across the country. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, they've basically started a chapter at every law school campus around the country. Um, And in the past, I think, five years or less, they've expanded their um, interest into the digital space. And so Bedstock Films started just a few years ago. Um, And so we take that, you know, debates on um, legal and policy issues and we bring it um, to the Internet. So, yeah, it's a really exciting time for us. Yes, it is. So then, um, you know, these topics that you, on fashion and intellectual property, that's why, you know, because it's a legal sort of a thing that you, you know, did these documentaries on those specific topics? So, yeah, so we do documentaries on a variety of topics, um, but just a little overview of the different types of film we, films we make. Um, the first type of film is called our show Scotus Brief, and uh-huh. we feature um, between, you know, five and seven videos a quarter on upcoming Supreme Court case 
cases that are going to be argued um, that are relevant to the Federal Society's areas of interest. Mm-hmm. And so I produce those, and it's usually one lawyer or professor or legal expert explaining the issues in the case. Then our second type of video is called a policy brief. Mm-hmm. And those outline different policy issues. So we did one on, called You Can't Bake Your Own Pie on the idea of wealth creation, how the metaphor of the pie metaphor is inaccurate. That got over 300,000 views, I think, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it issues from that to driverless cars and, you know, anything in between. Um, and then we do a show called Number 86, which is a law school curriculum, basically um, landmark Supreme Court cases. So we feature a variety of different Supreme Court cases that are taught in law schools, but we bring in, you know, a federal society expert. And then we do mini docs. So we do a handful a year. I think it's maybe a dozen a year. Um, and yeah, my first one that I uh, basically wrote, directed, and produced is Fashion Intellectual Property. And that was released this year. And it was pretty cool to marry my day job, which is filmmaking, with my passion, which I guess I do bring to my day job because I love dressing up for work, <laughs> uh, which is fashion. So that right. was really exciting. Wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit more specifically about those films, because I know, um, you know, a lot of people are might be familiar with the fashion industry, but they don't really ever hear about unless you were in the industry and maybe read the business of, of fashion and the fashion trades. They really don't get into these sorts of things that are vital and so important, you know, to the fashion industry when it comes to, you know, intellectual property and tariffs. So can you delve a little into the content of your films? Sure. So, yeah, for fashion intellectual property, basically, I was inspired over drinks at a speakeasy in Georgetown with a woman who is a vice president of communications at the Fashion Industry Association in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, we need to find like a, an attractive, appealing way to get law school students and millennials interested in, uh, you know, the legal and policy aspect of these specific issues. And so I thought, oh, fashion sounds like a great lens. And so I dug into it and I realized, Basically, every fashion company has a legal counsel, in-house legal counsel. They use lawyers, like, right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, any, anything from the beginning with a trademark search to make sure the name that you want to use for your fashion uh, label isn't taken um, and protecting, you know, your name in America and abroad. And so the, basically the three main categories of intellectual property uh, for fashion are uh, copyright, trademark, and patent. And the biggest two in America are copyright and trademark. And so trademark is usually your first step if you want to, you know, legally protect your company, your brand, or your design, your individual garment. Um, And so that's trademarking, you know, your logo, your name. And then there's copyright, which involves the design itself and, you know, whatever images you make, whether it's a pattern or, you know, your company logo or whatever that derives from that, um, you want to protect that so you get paid for your intellectual property. And patent is, isn't as much of an issue in America regarding clothing in particular. I know that there are patent issues in the jewelry industry, watches, you know, jewels and stuff like that. But right. mostly in America, the big two, the big two are copyright and trademark, which is, which are two of the focuses in our film. Right, exactly. Since with patterns and things like that, those aren't really, um, you know, able to be, patented you know just like you have certain designers you know like diane von furstenberg with the wrap dress and things like that where it's a signature look but they can't prevent somebody from also making you know a wrap dress or chanel from making like a little black dress and those sorts of things exactly because if you think you invented the wrap dress you're 
very historically um, <laughs> not woke. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a ver- variations of wrap dress in human history. So, right. so you know, kimono is a wrap dress. So, um, and we like to air in America. I think the climate for intellectual property and fashion is airing on the side of freedom of expression and in terms of patent, right? You don't want to exactly. patent certain dress designs because if you really like, for example, something that's trending that I love and I still have a bunch in my closet are the bell sleeve dress mm-hmm. or medieval sleeve or whatever they yes. call them. Um, and yeah, that's got trending. I don't know who started it, but for someone to say, Oh, I invented this, you know, unique, you know, dramatic sleeve. I right. mean, just look in art history and be like, ah, no. Yeah, it's <laughs> been there for a while. <laughs> yeah. In Ecclesiastes and in fashion, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, you know, and I think your film even had touched upon this, too, where it's just kind of, you know, it, it it's difficult. Um, and I think that they're working on trying to protect, you know, the ideas of designers, like when it came to Christian Louboutin with the red, you know, undersoles for his shoes, but then to still have the freedom. And that's why we can't patent these patterns, because it's like, well, yes, you you might have found a new way to present it or something a, a little bit unique. Maybe they added some kind of, I don't know, laser cut out on their bell sleeve and no one did that really much before them. But it, it's still, it's a variation of something. And that way it, it still allows that creativity for these various designers to use those elements because you can't really have a monopoly. Yep. Otherwise it would be like, okay, only one company can ever make pants anymore or only one company can only yeah. make, you know, a specific sort of thing in, in that case. So, you know, I think yeah. that that's fascinating of finding that balance between what what is, you know, giving the right, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> like a claim to the idea of, you know, whoever came up with a specific idea without it stifling the creativity and opportunity for other designers. So I think that's important. Yeah. Um, and, and it seems, you know, lately that there's more of this sort of uh, of a talk around things. It might be because of the lawsuits um, specifically with Christian Louboutin and some of these other designers that have recently come up that are kind of getting that conversation going of what's that, that middle line um, between that and then even just fashion law, it seems to be uh, is getting some traction because I remember even in fashion school, like it was starting to become more of a thing where they're like, well, you know, you might also want to look at fashion law, which, you know, in a in another life, that would be fun. <laughs> you know, marry two things I yeah. love so much together. But um, a yeah. lot of people didn't really know about that even 20 years ago. It wasn't as much of a thing as it is now. Yeah, and these are issues that are still hotly debated. And so full disclosure, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I studied philosophy. Um, I just I'm dating a lawyer and I'm paid by lawyers. So, you know, <laughs> right. You just yeah, it intersects to, with them a lot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um but I so I've learned a lot. And so one of the things I love about my job is I'm li- I feel every day I'm like I'm literally paid to learn things. And so it's like what air it's like being a journalist, right? But right. Except it's a film format. And so Going into this, I basically making my film changed completely my relationship with fashion. Like it's unbelievable the way I shop, what I look for in clothing, mm-hmm. and these what we're talking about in terms of like uh, copyright, trademark, patent, um, but especially copyright and trademark. These are issues still debated and still litigated. So, right. for example, um, the one you mentioned, Christian Louboutin, the French designer who mm-hmm. trademarked his red sole. Um, there was a lawsuit with. Um, Yves Saint Laurent, and they created a shoe with a red sole, but I believe the initial shoe was um, monochromatic red, so all, right. red all the way around. Exactly. The reason why in certain industries there are trademark protections for things like color and stuff is 
you know, these companies have invested millions, well, well, the big ones, Tiffany, Christian Louboutin, millions of dollars in protecting their, for example, Tiffany's has a secret, I think they have a secret uh, Pantone for their Tiffany Blue. They do. And, and it's copy trade. Yeah. 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 And so there's a, there's debate in the legal field and whether or not you can actually trademark a color. And, you know, I err on the side of, you know, well, I mean, if the color is popular or something is popular, it's probably because it's beautiful. Um, but right. one of the reasons why things are protected is to not mislead consumers. So that's why there's different protections for trademarks and stuff like that. And so, you know, you don't want to be tricked as a consumer into buying what you think is a Tiffany bracelet or a Tiffany ring, and then it's not. So there's right. certain reasons why I think that they do protect things, and it's good. So you're not getting ripped off as a designer, but I think it's a little extra to be suing people who want to paint the undersole of their shoe. I mean, it's, it's a difficult issue. It cuts both ways, but right. it's, some, of the, some of the lawsuits are really silly. For example, I don't remember if it, I think, yeah, it's the film. Uh, the My Other Bag, the parody. Oh, parody yes, cases. that's right. With the Louis Vuitton <laughs> logo. <laughs> yeah. And so those are really fun and funny because I interviewed lawyers, fashion lawyers in New York and L.A. And in New York, a woman, you know, litigated with Louis Vuitton. And she was telling me how ridiculous and like, you know, these lawsuits were like Louis Vuitton raising, you know, suits against a company called Hot Diggity Dog for having a squeaky right. toy called Chewy Vuitton. Oh and a bag. <laughs> and you know, things are just cute. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, no, you're right. And so, you know, there are some where you're like, okay, guys, that's that's a little bit much. But I do understand, too, though, like with Christian Louboutin, of it can cheapen their brand. If everybody all of a sudden exactly. has red soles, then, you know, it's yeah. like, well, it's not a big deal. Everybody has red soles, so who cares? Whereas you see somebody walking down those, the street and you know they're wearing those Christian Louboutin because, right, <laughs> at least. Yeah. So, you know, there's yeah. there's that. So, yeah, no, that, but that's just awesome. And we're, we're going to post the links to your films on the site um, so that, you know, all of our listeners can can watch them there um, because I think it's a really fascinating topic. Now, we've talked, you know, before about some different things. And you mentioned that you were a convert um, and that you, you know, beauty and um, just a lot of these things that even that you're into now basically basically you know truth goodness and beauty are what has led you to the faith so can you tell us a little bit about what initially led to your conversion sure so um i don't know how this happened but i grew up like hearing about catholicism and i know that catholics existed but i didn't under i didn't really get what it was so like for example you know i was born in southern california you know lol i didn't know what catholicism was right but i saw those Marys and people's front yards, and I just thought it was a Mexican thing. Like, I didn't know what Catholicism was, <laughs> right. you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. It's like a cultural thing. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I get to call, and there were always jokes. Like, I grew up, I was baptized Episcopal. My father's Lutheran, my mother was Catholic. Um, and mm-hmm. so they raised, I guess they baptized me in the middle. Right. I was and so say. I heard jokes like, oh, they're a recovering Catholic. And so I was like, what is this Catholicism? It sounds like it sounds like it's been a bad experience for a lot of people. And so then I make it to college and I learn, I take philosophy courses. And so in my head, I had divided different types of knowledge between Christian knowledge, like the kind of intellectuality that like pastors have and like religious knowledge, mm-hmm. and then philosophy, philosophical knowledge, which was higher and true. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until I started reading Aquinas and, you know, books in college by doctors of the church that I realized, oh my gosh, these are 
one and the same. Like the exactly. philosophers are monks and priests and nuns and whoa. So, <laughs> you know, I was I started out reading the apocryphal text because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a rebellious contrarian spirit. Right. And then I started reading the catechism and I met a Catholic boy in my philosophy of love class who told me about <laughs> Catholicism. He's a Franciscan seminary dropout. And at first I thought that was like weird, you know, because of all the cliches about priests. And right. then now, like, I think it's the cutest thing ever. I'm obsessed with it. Like, I was just at a reception yesterday with Dominican Brothers, and I love it. But at first, you know, I had these accommodations of, like, blank slateness towards mm-hmm. Catholicism, and then, you know, the typical entrenched biases that I observed via, you know, cultural osmosis. And so I read the Bible when I was 18, 19 in college, um, and I just started reading it. And then my friend, who became my boyfriend in my philosophy of love class, said, well, you're reading the catechism. Do you want to come to Mass? And I'm like, oh, sure. I guess that's what I should do. <laughs> so I went to Mass. <laughs> so and one I of those flirt to, to convert <laughs> kind of oh, totally. situations. So that he like was totally like disinterestedly altruistic. Inviting. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But <laughs> in my mind, I was like, oh, sure. I'll go to Mass with you. And I went to Mass at, you know, the campus mass that they had in, you know, one of those rooms that they convert and <laughs> convert right. into like event classes. And so it was not a church, but I could tell the way they had the mass going on. I didn't know what was going on, technically speaking, but mm-hmm. I had a sense uh, that something sacred was going on. And so full disclosure, before that, my experience of Christianity, like all I remembered was the uh, the chocolate covered sprinkled donuts on Sunday, which not going to lie, <laughs> still are awesome aftermath but um <laughs> members of christianity right well so, god can use anything to bring us closer to him even a donut <laughs> oh totally i'm a foodie so like it's definitely a thing um, that's actually also what got me to go into latin but that's the story for later um <laughs> donuts and coffee so yeah so i started going to mass and um and before that my last experience as a protestant was you know, I was reading the Bible in college, and I had this in- deep intuition and, like, sense of reverence that I knew that I was supposed to be going to church day, and it was a thing. But I ended up going to a church in South Florida, where I'm calling from right now, mm-hmm. and I took my sisters, like, we have to go to church. And it ended up being a mega church, and there was literally a lion and a lamb on stage. And I was like, oh, oh wow. my gosh, I can't do this anymore. This isn't real. This is crazy. Like, it feels like Disney World. So, right. anyway... It was a combination of, you know, just, it was really intellectual curiosity and a sense of the sacred. And then I went to Catholic Mass with my then boyfriend, and I just thought, you know, the Catholic churches, the Masses were just very beautiful, and the way the priest consecrated the Eucharist, I didn't know what the Eucharist was really, but I could just tell there was something very reverent and beautiful, not just the beauty of the churches, but spiritually beautiful, and I'd never seen that before as a Christian. Right, Wow. Well, and then you also mentioned that, um, you know, you had been reading certain authors and that that kind of also led you deeper in. I mean, you know, you started in philosophy, like with Aquinas and all of them, but then that led you, I think you had mentioned Dietrich von Hildebrand and some of these other great Catholic writers. Yeah, so Dietrich von Hildebrand was a huge influence on me. And again, beauty. Um, mm-hmm. I was perusing the philosophy of love section in my university library in Florida and a about 2010 or 11, maybe 2010. And I saw a book that looked pretty, and I looked at the cover, and it was stained glass, and I didn't know at the time that it was 
St. Monica and is it Joachim? Uh-huh. No, no, no. Anna. Anna and Joachim, Mary's parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a Giotto painting. Anyway, I thought it was really pretty. I don't know who they were, but they looked religious. And so I started reading it, <laughs> and I fell in love with von Hildebrand's you know, philosophy of love. And I emailed the translators, and I started corresponding with one of them, John F. Crosby, who's a professor at Louisville, Ohio. And yeah, I just fell in love with Utrecht and Hildebrand's philosophies, and I read his works on love and most recently aesthetics and yeah i mean total like i guess you would call it divine providence right right randomly encountering one of the greatest catholic philosophers who i think it was benedict said that hildebrand's going to be counted among the doctors of the church someday so well and his (laughs) own conversion wasn't dietrich's own conversion also through beauty you know the beauty the philosophical beauty that led him to the catholic faith as well so yeah, so Hildebrand was born in a 15th century monastery in Florence. I'm wow. such a fangirl that I I went there twice. The time I <laughs> I'm it. jealous, very <laughs> jealous. <laughs> Everyone should totally just check out San Francesco de Paola next time they're in Florence. Just saying, and yeah, so it's kind of funny. He calls his family, you know, noble pagans. You know, they're mm-hmm. Protestant. German, but grew up because his father was a famous sculptor, Adolf von Hildebrand. And so he grew up in the birthplace of beauty, Florence. And he converted when he was about my age. I think he converted 101 years before me, almost at this exact same age as me. And yeah, the beauty he was surrounded by and his, it wasn't just beauty, you know, an Oscar Wilding sense of, you know, beauty for the sake of just beauty. It was beauty paired with virtue. And, um, yeah, he started reading philosophy and yeah, but beauty was a big influence on him. And I can't imagine living in Florence with, you know, basically Catholic beauty, you know, and not being deeply impacted by the sacred beauty. No, absolutely. And it just shows why, you know, everything we do, no matter what industry, that beauty is so important because when you can't reach people through, you know, reason or their intellect at times even. I mean, thanks be to God, you know, you and Dietrich and, and other converts, you know, have found God through intellectual beauty as well. But that, you know, just even that environmental beauty of, of what we're around and what we see and touch and feel, that that can also bring us to God. So we're going to take a little break, yeah. but we'll be right back. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty, and I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra. Today we have filmmaker Samantha Schroeder with us, and she's been talking to us about her conversion. So that's just amazing. And again, it's always fascinating to hear all the different, you know, means that God uses to bring people to him. And, you know, time and time and again, beauty is is a big thing. And, you know, in some of the conversations that you and I have had before, um, you know, we've talked about beauty in regards to elegance and, and basically kind of like the lost art of elegance. I think you said you even you wrote something on this. So I'd love to talk more about that because it's just I think that's a topic that's dear to both of us. Um, and that's just missing in our culture of, of how we can kind of elevate, you know, ourselves and others every day through elegance. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up watching Turner Classic movies. Mm-hmm. So I think I had an unrealistic standard of the beauty of being a woman. <laughs> Same. From the get-go, you right. know, and so I was like, oh, I want to have like long red fingernails and fabulous <laughs> hair and a sultry, you know, voice and just be elegant and, you know. And so I, that's what I thought life was going to be like as an adult. And I've become very disillusioned, except for my re- most recent trip to Verona. Mm-hmm. where beauty and elegance is alive and well. And actually, the older you are in Italy, but especially Northern Italy, Verona, Milan, mm-hmm. the more elegant the women are. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, so beauty, my view of beauty fashion is that it's a form of a democratization of beauty. That, mm-hmm. You know, we all can participate in beauty by, you know, appropriating it to our attire. And yeah, so my first essay in The Federalist years ago, um, I wanted to call it The Lost Art of Elegance, but... Ironically, they wanted to sex it up, and so they called it trying to be sexy instead of elegant and juvenile. Right. <laughs> that way people will read it, right? <laughs> exactly. you gotta, you got to get the click. So I, I was inspired by this French woman named Jacqueline Derive, who mm-hmm. was such a fabulous French socialite that she started her own clothing line. And, you know, she's, one of, she's of that age where there were all these socialites and they're before, obviously, well before Instagram, and right. they would just grace society with their presence and their beauty and their clothing. And so she basically turned that into her vocation, her job. And so her quote is, does anybody want to be elegant rather than sexy? And so I think that's a mm. perennial issue among women today. Right. And what we wear every day as Catholics, Catholic women especially, matters. I think it communicates our values. I think Absolutely. it, you know, if, if we, if the liter we participate in the liturgy and I'm of a more, you know, rad trad Latin mass mindset. Like I don't <laughs> right. think I'm literally a part of the liturgy, but we are in a communal prayer and we're in the presence of you God, know, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And so my view has always been, you know, if you're going to take all this time and get dressed up for a date, you should look that good or better if you're going to mass. Right. And so, you know. I think it's very important how we dress, not just in church, but in everyday life, because, you know, we are apostles. We're out there in the world, and how we, what we wear, how we convey ourselves, it's, it's part of our witnessing of the faith, and that's how we will convert people. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, you know, it's just, even when some people, you know, will argue and say, like, oh, well, you're more approachable if you're not so done up. But but I don't think that, you know, at all that that, that holds any weight, at least not in my personal experience. I think when you're dressed well, there's something attractive about you to others and to where they do want to approach you because they kind of want to know, like, who are you? Or, you know, you look like somebody in the know. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we have this other and extreme. It's about raising the tenor of society. It's raising... Right the bar, right? Like how people treat you generally, how men treat you as women, especially in this age of, you know, Me Too and total utter sexual confusion. I think elegance and, you know, we live in an age of vulgarity and ugliness is the standard. And so I think beauty in the end is going to triumph. And I think we need to do all we can to keep, you know, manners and beauty and elegance in society so we can stay civilized, really. Right. Well, and, and, you know, kind of like you mentioned with your um, the title of, of your um, article, um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, sexy versus beautiful, because I think that all the influencers on Instagram, all the celebrities, their emphasis is not on beauty. It's on sex and it's about being sexy. But there's a difference because there's some things that are sexy that are beautiful, but not 
typically, you know, from what we've found and, and just what, you know, that kind of the difference between the two of them? Yeah, so I haven't thought deeply about the etymology of these things, but I mean, right. I think the, the goal or the, te- so think about the goal or the telos of these things. So the goal or the telos of beauty is, well, that's actually a perennial question, but for sexy, I think it's in the term sex. It's using your, you know, sex appeal and it's playing to the lust of others, the lust right. of your woman, men. And so I think... I think if a woman's elegant, people could say, oh, she looks very sexy. Or I think someone could be totally modestly, chastely attired and elegant, and people could still call her sexy, right. um, which is an accident, right? It's not the goal. But I think, right. yeah, women's goals are, a lot of women, um, you know, Instagram and stuff like that, They, <laughs> I think Carolina Herrera said this once when she was talking about Rihanna, who is right. uh, allegedly a fashion icon, she said, Oh, I have no comment on Rihanna. Um, she never wears any clothes. If she starts wearing clothes, I'll comment on her attire. Right. <laughs> and I think that's exactly it, right? You know, a lot of women are wearing right. nothing. And so, yeah, there's not much to say about that. Right. And... <laughs> well, and, and, and it's just kind of like anything, which, you know, it's it's just I feel like we can, you know, it kind of spirals and we can go on and on. and But it all kind of comes back to the same thing. And, you know, with the sexy versus beautiful thing. The sexy thing, it's more of like, view me as an object for use, for a specific use, namely sex. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas look at the beauty that I behold, like, that I have within myself and who it points to. That beauty points to who made me, to my dignity, to, you know, to God eventually. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just a big difference. And same with architecture, where it's just kind of like something is there for its own sake or to be used, um, which I think is why, you know, maybe part of the fuel behind the Me Too movement, um, that some of their claims are are rather legitimate with, you know, feeling, uh, being victims and being used, but it, but part of it is our own cultural, when we're all culturally culpable for that, when we promote these sorts of things, where it's, it basically, we're telling the world by how we dress or act, I, you know, am sexy, and so I'm just this object for your use. It, that's what it's promoting. So it's kind of, you know, we can't, we can't really fix the Me Too movement and all the things that have come from that and, and what women have suffered until we realize that we need to focus on beauty rather than, you know, being sexy. Absolutely. And that that serves a specific to, time and place. But, you know, um, yeah, yeah, I think you put it very well. And to, to think about that in symbolic terms, mm-hmm. the sexy, think of sexy as celebrities, you know, who just want you know, who are being used. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. they make money with their bodies. <laughs> exactly. So. But then the, the opposite, the counter to that, beauty is Beatrice, right? Dante right. beholds Beatrice exactly. along the Arno. And what is he beholding in Beatrice? He's not saying, oh, check out her, you know, sexy robe. No, no, right. no, no. He says, look at this beautiful creature of God. Mm-hmm. It was perfectly chaste. It was at a distance. And, you know, Beatrice led him to God, exactly. to a higher beauty, to a higher love. And so I think as women, we bear a huge responsibility. It is tempting to want to be sexy or thought of as attractive or hot or whatever. I mean, I Right, be desirable. Yes, right. Yeah, we want to feel, but I think at the end of the day, we don't want to feel sexy. We don't want the man to want us for our you know, reproductive organs. Right. We want men to want our souls and to exactly. want to love us. For who we are. So, 
<laughs> yeah, and you're not going to get that with, you know, a crop top and booty shorts. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's just so important. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty, and I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra. So, Samantha, we were talking about, you know, sexy versus beautiful and just the way the culture is obsessed with sexy opposed to beautiful right now and how that just kind of furthers, you know, the abuse that a lot of women experience by being viewed as an object rather than being viewed as a person and that beauty needs to be our goal. Um, And kind of, you know, keeping on that subject, you know, there's a lot of, like we were talking about, you know, elegance and attire and, you know, attire in the liturgy. But with, you know, elegance, a lot of people seem to think, oh, well, that's that's nice if you're rich or that's nice if you're a stuffed up person or that's nice if you're trying to impress someone. But I'm, I'm real, so I don't care if I go out and about my day in my pajamas or I don't care if I just wear athletic wear all day. And you know, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, that's true. Like they're being authentic. They're being them, which I definitely have a different opinion on that. But but what's your opinion? <laughs> My opinion is that we live in a civilized society mm-hmm. uh, that we fought hard for as human beings. You know, we're not right. living intense, vulnerable to nature and barbarians. We live in cities and we have cities with beautiful architecture and, you know, squares well, I'm thinking, I guess, of Europe right now, but, you know, public spaces. And right. I think that if you're in a public space and you're encountering people, there should be a sense of decorum and propriety. And I think an underlying philosophical value that ties together, you know, beauty and all and the liturgy and clothing is the idea of reverence. Right. You know, you should have a reverence for yourself. You should have just a sense of um, dignity and... Yeah, we live in a civilized society, and I, I, there's plenty of people out there. I think it's because of modernity. You know, in the past 50 years, like 70s and on, right. uh, we've lost, you know, if you look at vintage photos, you, every time I see one, I lo- I'm like, we're so missing out. You see men all have hats on or suits on, and right. women all wear dresses. I think it's total laziness. I don't think it's authenticity. Um, the only time you should be casually dressed, I guess, is inside your house. And you should basically clothing, clothing has a, a, a purpose, right? You right. wear things for certain things, right? So right. you don't have a pearls to the gym. Go to the gym, wear what's appropriate for the gym. Right. You know, if you're cleaning your house, you don't have to wear, you know, your Christian baton. Right. But if you are, I mean. I mean, you could, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I drink wine and wear pearls, for, you know, to get me through the cleaning part. But yeah, I think as a human and society, we have obligations to others. And, you know, we're, I think it's very selfish, it's very solipsistic. It's very, yeah. And utilitarian. I mean, it's, it just kind of goes yeah. back down to everything's about, well, what can this be used for? And it should be what whatever befit, you know, benefits that opposed to what can inspire others. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, too, is that a lot of times people don't realize just how much, I mean, which you think they would, but just everything around us affects us interiorly so much. And, you know, that's why in private schools, children wear uniforms. It puts them in a certain frame of mind. You know, religious have a religious habit. It says so much about who they are. 
um, that without yeah. it, it's harder for them. You know, it can be harder to convey it or, you know, people might not notice it right away. Just like even, you know, with different uh, military ranks, you know, they have special insignia. It just it's it just shows in, in all these different you know, educational mm -hmm. and governmental sorts of things, people wear uniforms or wear specific things to display who they are, but it also informs us interiorly. And I know for me, even if, you know, I'm working from home, you know, on a particular time or whatever, that I, I'm not the kind of person who can, you know, work in her pajamas. I have to be <laughs> ready for the day yep. and dressed. I just find I, you know, it just kind of, informs your body and if i'm in pajamas you know you, you kind of just want to curl up on the couch or read you don't really want to get any work done exactly right um, again it's the occasion if you're in pajamas what are pajamas for exactly for, for rest for and sleep and lounging about right <laughs> yeah i think this bifurcation of the self i think this idea that it doesn't matter what you wear it's all about what's on the inside i think it's a sort of dualism right right it's like all that matters is my thoughts all that matters Very true. it's like no we're we're humans we exist only with our bodies we do not exist as humans right you know outside of our bodies Very we point. operate in this world yeah as employees as creators as apostles in our body. And so I think it's ridiculous to try to say, you know, you're not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what we wear. It absolutely matters what we wear. And, right. you know, if, it, if you really don't care what you wear, you know, you should, you could go live in a log cabin on the mountain and forage and, you know, be outside of society, you know, and do your thing. But I think for the majority of us, we exist inside of a society, we interact with others, and it's important. Even when I'm a tourist, especially when I'm a tourist, when I'm visiting Italy, I felt it was a particular responsibility to look fabulous and not, right. you know, yeah, not, wear anything. Don't embarrass us over there. <laughs> yeah, no cargo shorts, no flip-flops, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, no t-shirts, no workout clothes, no stretchy pants on the street. No, I'm going to be, I'm going to wear my, my best. Right. Just my best. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, the other portion of it, too, is that, you know, a lot of people think, well, I'm dressing for me, so it shouldn't matter if I wear something like guys need to watch their eyes or they need to just be responsible for themselves, which, yes, the way someone dresses is never a right for someone to mistreat or abuse someone. But mm -hmm. we do owe respect, and I think, you know, to others by our dress. Yep. So, you know, it's just, I think it's ridiculous when people try to claim like, well, I should be able to wear whatever I want because I'm dressing for me. It's like, well, if you're only the only person that you're going to see all day, if you're home alone, fine, do whatever you want. Yeah. But you're going out and about and it's it's rude and, you know, disrespectful. And I, I think we've lost yeah. that as a society where, you, and, and I've you know, you can kind of see that. And like you mentioned, we both grew up on Turner Classic movie films <laughs> so i don't yeah. know perhaps we have a certain idealization of certain things but but when you look back at that era you know where people just in general dressed well the respect and the manners were far far better um than they are now in fact now they're practically non-existent you know with how people treat you and it just when you're respecting others in your dress it, it causes them to respect you back you know even I've had a comment from friends who had mentioned, you know, why is it that whenever you're walking into a place, some man always opens a door for you? And it's like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how they, you know, can tell I'm not one of those 
crazy, you know, I, I hate to call them feminists because I don't really think they are feminists, you know, <laughs> who, who will yell, right, who will yell at him yeah, for how dare you open the door for me? Yeah, I can open yeah. it myself <laughs> kind of a thing. But, you know, they can tell from the way I dress or my comportment that, oh, she's not, she's not crazy like that. Um, I can open the door for her. But I think it's, you know, also um, that you just, you kind of demand it by your, your own presence and being where you can influence others, even, you know, on film sets, the secular ones, that is, you know, there's always a lot of cussing and language that can be bad and um on some where we've had you know a regular shoot i've noticed that a lot of the guys and even some of the girls that they would you know tone down the language and i never said hey you know can you not do that but i wouldn't speak to them that way i wouldn't drop the f-bomb in my sentences that i you know asked them about something so i think that it just informed them where they realized like hey let's um clean up our language or let's you know you you just it's amazing how just by dressing well because i didn't go in there and say hey guys i'd appreciate if you don't do this because that's offensive to me because you know that would just be they then they wouldn't listen or they, they would feel forced to but this comes from them where they're reciprocating that respect um that's being shown to they're them. responding yeah they're responding to your value right. and i think it ties back to what i said about reverence if you dress like, you are worthy of reverence and respect, and, you know, you're not a woman to be taken advantage of. And I, I totally am there with, like, when I dress up, like, I always dress up, but when I really dress up, and I can tell I'm definitely more dressed than people around me, men just hold the elevator door, hold the metro door, which is never a good idea. And be, <laughs> you know, they'll just stand back and let me just, you know, whisk on by. And it's adorable. I love it. And, you know, you can really change the tenor and the tone of this, of society by dressing well. And, you know, exactly. like what I said earlier, what you say communicates things. If you want to, if you want to go around naked, scantily clad, there are societies for that. I think there's probably right. a civilization in this world for every state of dress. It's just not this one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not Western culture. Thank you very much. Well, and yeah, you know, and, and this is just shown to us too, like, you know, going back to, the original source of beauty with God and the liturgy. And that's why, you know, we have beautiful paintings and beautiful, well, you know, not all, but <laughs> most churches where they're beautiful interiors. Like if you look at the churches in Europe, it's just stunning. Like you go in there and it's just, just awe-inspiring and draw shopping. And, you know, like the vestments and the altar linens and it all points to like, well, well, why? You know, if it was just a piece of bread, would we have beautiful vestments and have these beautiful all linen you know, altar linens, it's like, no. It, and it just points to who's really there, that God is going to become present here, actually present here in the Blessed Sacrament. That's kind Absolutely. of, you know, what we want to mirror with our dress. <laughs> exactly. We want to be the, you know, the Beatrices of the world, not the, you know, right pop star celebrities. We want to be the beautiful old churches that, you know, bring our eyes and our hearts, lift them up, towards God. We don't want to be, you know, a scantily clad or, you know, recovated post-1960s, right. you know, suburban church. <laughs> right. That's not going to lead you anywhere exactly. you want to be. <laughs> right. And again, it's just more of a utilitarian sort of a thing. So, yep. yeah, no. It's, Beauty it's, is not a frivolity. Beauty is a necessity. And it's something that, yeah, it leads, every, it leads people to the ultimate source of beauty at the end of the day. Right. Well, and, and that's, you know, what our aim needs to be, where we're informed in all these ways. But I, I, again, you know, like you mentioned, it's not a frivolity. It's a necessity that we all need to participate in. So, you know, whether it's yeah. film work 
or, or just the way we dress, we can really impact the culture um, and elevate it through these means. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on and, you know, look forward to more of the films that you'll be working on and, um, you know, your articles and things like that, which we'll post up on the site. But thank you for joining um, and discussing these things with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A Culture of Beauty. We'll see you next time. This week's podcast is sponsored by Holy Innocence Parish School, Catholic classical liberal arts education in the heart of Long Beach. To find out more information, you can visit their website at www.lbcatholicschool.com.